0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 7. If you can, please stand when you get that. 1 Samuel, chapter 7. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in kirjath a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines." The children of Israel put away the bells and the asterisks and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Father, it's just been just a, a joy and a strength today to be here in your presence and to sing your praises and to fellowship with the saints. Now we turn to your word, Lord, and just pray that it would go deep into our hearts and find fertile ground and do that which only your work can do, Lord. And that's transform us and make us just a little bit more like your son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1982... ABC Evening News reported an unusual work of modern art. It was a chair affixed to a shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the gun barrel. The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next hundred years. (laughs) The amazing thing was that people waited in line to sit in this chair and stare into the shell's path. They all knew that the gun could go off at any moment at point-blank range. But they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen while they were sitting in the chair. Yes, that was reckless and foolish. Yet many people who wouldn't dream of sitting in that chair live a lifetime gambling that they can get away with their sinful choices. Irrationally, they ignore the risk Until the inevitable self destruction finally happens. And up until this morning in our passage, this is what Israel has done up to this point. Up until now, we have seen Eli, who was a weak high priest, and his two wicked sons, and even the whole nation adopt and accept many of the practices of their pagan neighbors. The result? Pain and misery. And even now the Philistines are gathering at their border for yet another attack. But just as the night seems the darkest, there is a ray of light. Samuel, whom we have not seen since he was a boy, is now a man. And the Lord will use him to call the nation back to God. Look at verse 1 with me. Then the man of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The ark was eventually taken to Kirjath-Jerim, which is about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, where it resided in the house of Abinadab. Can you imagine if that was your house they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into? Quick, Nadine, hide the beer and put the TV on that religious channel. God is coming for lunch. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, the Ark of the Covenant, in one sense, comes into your house every time that you walk into the door. What do I mean? In the New Testament, God doesn't live in an Ark through his Holy Spirit, he now resides in every individual believer. Your body, in a sense, is the New Testament Ark of the Covenant. Back to First Samuel. So we find the Ark in the house of Abinadab, guarded by a young man named Eleazar. He is going to take care of this Ark because no one else wanted it. Do you know what's interesting? The exact same thing happened to Jesus, of which the Ark is but a shadow. Remember that time that Jesus, who, after he had been refused by the nation, cast out all the money changers in the temple? After he leaves the temple, he goes over the Mount of Olives to stay outside of the city. There is a man there who receives him into his house, and Jesus stays there and fellowships with him. He was the man that Jesus raised from the dead, and his name was Lazarus. What's fascinating is Lazarus is the New Testament rendering of Eleazar. I dig stuff like that. As we arrive in chapter 7, the ark had been in Israel now for 20 years. But although the ark has returned, the blessings of God have not. The text said a long time passed, some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For Israel, it took 20 years to turn back to God. For 20 years, the people had no experience with the Lord. For 20 years, there was nothing happening in the temple. No word of the Lord had been spoken, and God was absolutely silent in their lives. But finally, enough was enough. Finally, they came to the realization that they cannot do life by themselves. They realized they would not be able to manage without the Lord. They had gotten to a place where they had just simply, finally, had enough. I want us to understand that just like the nation of Israel, it is not until we get to a place where we know that we have had enough that we'll do whatever it takes for a change to take place. On whatever field of life the enemy is pressing us, the battle will not stop until we finally say that we have had enough. We have had enough and it is time to turn things around. This is where the children of Israel have finally gotten. The great thing is, though, not only does God allow U-turns, he will make the road miserable and rocky until we do turn. Whether in the Old Testament or the New, God shows his willingness to make the lives of his people uncomfortable if they ignore him and turn away. This is Hebrews twelve five. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son that he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son does the father not discipline? God doesn't discipline his people because he hates us. He disciplines us because he loves us. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't discipline you. Jesus said, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Israel had spent 20 years learning the futility of putting their treasures in front of gods who could not satisfy their needs, and they were tired of it. The whole purpose of God's discipline here was to make his people remember. To help them remember where they, what they have left behind and to make them homesick for God's blessings. Look at verse 3 with me. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. If you remember a couple years ago from our study in the book of Judges, we talked about how the story of Israel and their history through the time of Judges was one of a cyclical sinning against God. God would allow them to be oppressed. The people would cry out to God and then God would deliver them. Now, it's easy for us to look at that cycle and maybe be a little critical in our hearts. We wonder, what was their problem that they kept repeating the same frustrating pattern over and over again? Why didn't they get it the first time or the second time or even the tenth time? But all we have to do, I think, is just take a closer look at our own spiritual lives to see that the story of Israel is really very often our story also it is very hard to maintain an upward spiritual trajectory in regards to our spiritual growth. It seems that all of us are capable of slipping into a routine that is quite empty of any kind of spiritual vitality. And if we stay there long enough, we soon realize that the spiritual life can really be quite bland. And dare we take a more scrutinizing gaze, we would likely find that we have let slip some holy habits. We've let drop some pious principles, and we've let slide some saintly standards. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We're not in open rebellion. We're just stuck in a rut. We feel as if we're oppressed by mediocrity and our spiritual growth. And so we find ourselves in the same cycle as Israel. We are caught in that stage of being oppressed, caught in the goop of acceptable sins, not the hideous, outrageous sins that we look down upon, just the invisible ones that no one sees but God alone. Well, suddenly, without warning, in verse 3, Samuel appears again in our story. More than 20 years previously, Samuel has last appeared when the word of the Lord came to Samuel in chapter 4, verse 1. And although the details are not given, it's as though Samuel had been waiting 20 long years. For this moment to finally arrive. Israel's tears were the sign that they had once again ready to hear the word of Samuel. What they heard was the gospel according to Samuel. The gospel that Sam proclaimed that day was a simple but wonderful promise. Return to the Lord with all of your heart. And he will save you from the hand of the Philistines and judgment. I've been calling Samuel's message Samuel's gospel because... The response of Israel that day will have its echo in the experience of Christian people in the New Testament. Paul will later describe this exact same experience in terms that strikingly correspond to the experience of Israel. Paul will say this in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Now listen to this. How you turned to God from idols and then did what? And then served the true and the living God. That's what's happening this morning in Israel in our text. Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord, probably one of the most important words in all the Bible is that little word, if. There are 1,637 instances of it in the New King James. Now, God is a God of choices, and we must make ours. No one else can make our choices for us. No one can tell us what to do. When it comes to spiritual things, the decision is ours alone. It's been said that life is like a coin. It's yours to spend, but you can only spend it one time. So whether or not you ever experience what God has for you in Christ Jesus is going to depend upon you making a decision. Here's Samuel's confirmation of what the last 20 years had involved. Now, Samuel did not just assume that all this weeping and wailing amounted to a true returning to the Lord. His words, however, did assume that they had been away from the Lord, at least in their hearts. Through these 20 years, Israel had never really recovered from Eli's era. So Samuel is going to say, if you are serious about this whole repenting thing, then there are certain things that must take place in your life. Verse 3 gives us the four steps that must be taken for a revival to take place in a nation and in an individual life. Listen to these verbs leap at you like hammer blows. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, put away these foreign gods, prepare your hearts to serve him alone, then he will deliver you. They were to return, put away, prepare, serve, and then God would deliver them. Now, this lamenting after the Lord because of the pain and grief inflicted by the ruthless Philistine conquerors had finally brought about a brokenness on the part of Israel. They finally came upon those who have so long sensed the need of God and a reorientation in their life. Now, the word returning indicates that the people had already started turning to the Lord at least inwardly during this time of lament. But Samuel says that the earnest evidence of this repentance must be externally demonstrated also. He insists that they remove the foreign gods from among them. God will not share worship with any other deity. For a wholehearted fellowship with the living God, he must supersede all other loyalties. And it begins with returning to the Lord, or what we would call repenting. The best word picture of that, I think, in the Bible is the prodigal son who one day standing in pig slop comes to his senses and decides to return home. Did you know that Jesus first public message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Did you know that in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, that five times Jesus calls not sinners, but the church to repentance? And yet many churches today are too embarrassed to even mention the word repentance. It seems archaic and unsophisticated to our modern way of thinking. Dr. Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral brought a message of self-esteem Christianity to the platform of the 61st Annual Convention of the National Associations of Evangelicals. He declared this. There are some things in the Bible I cannot swallow, but you get saved not by the book but by the blood. Keep your message positive. Understand God is a God of grace and glory, so forget the matter of justice. Schuler continued, Repentance is not a healthy response. Did you hear that? Repentance is not a healthy response. That is unadulterated heresy. In fact, repentance is the only healthy response whenever we blow it. So what does repentance look like? Samuel says that the people will return with all of their hearts. Now, heart is a relationship word. God doesn't want us just to follow a bunch of rules and regulations. He wants our hearts. And sin always separates us from God. It does not separate the believer from their position as a child of God. Once you are saved, I personally believe that you are saved for eternity. I don't think sin interrupts your union with God, but it does interrupt your intimate communion with God. It destroys that sweet, close fellowship that God longs to enjoy with you. It interrupts your communication and it drives a painful wedge between you and the Lord. In Psalm 51, David declares a truth worth remembering. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Don't wait 20 long years to see your fellowship with God restored. If you are away, return to the Lord today. Because if God feels far away today, it's because your sins have pushed him away. But he is longing for you to return. Now, at the end of verse 3, we learn something else about the 20-year period, or at least the most recent part of it. The Philistine threat had not been suppressed. The Philistines continued to menace Israel. Our last glimpse of the five of the Philistines in the narrative was as they made their way back to Ekron after witnessing the return of the ark. But that was 20 years ago. We've already heard indications that in those 20 years, or at least within recent times, the Philistines once again were beginning to intimidate Israel. But the point I want us to get this morning is the real problem wasn't the Philistines. The real problem was being away from God. The Lord says, if you just repent and serve me, I'll take care of the Philistines. So too with us. No matter what sin we struggle with, the real problem isn't lust addiction or greed those are just symptoms of the inner problem of our heart no if we will confess our sins freely to the lord and he promises that he will take care of the rest verse 4 so the children of israel put away the bells and the asterisks and served the lord only and samuel said gather all israel to mizpah and i will pray to the lord for you so they gathered together at mizpah drew water and poured it out before the lord And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. The phrase in verse 4 I want us to concentrate on are the words, and serve the Lord only. The Jews had given themselves to the idols of stone, wood, and metal. But believers today have much more subtle and attractive gods. Houses and lands. Wealth, automobiles, position and recognition, ambition, and even other people. Anything in our lives that takes the place that God alone commands the sacrifice and devotion from us, that is an idol, and it must be cast out. Really, idols in the heart are far more dangerous than idols in the temple. This is why we are exhorted to serve the Lord only, And this runs completely contrary to this world that we find ourselves in this morning. The holy grail of society today is tolerance. And so anytime one makes an absolute claim, feathers are sure to be ruffled. I think of that old preacher, Billy Sunday, who was once told that his preaching was rubbing the fur the wrong way, to which he replied, "Then tell them to turn the cat around. So when the Bible clearly tells us to serve the Lord and him only, you can be sure it's not going to go unnoticed or unchallenged in this world that we live in. What makes you think that Jesus is the only way to God? That is incredibly narrow. Well, yes, it is. And you know what? Truth by its very definition is very, very narrow. For example... Two plus two equals four. It has always equaled four. It will always equal four, and it doesn't matter how I feel about it, even if it hurts my inner puppy. I can believe with all my heart that two plus two equals five, but you know what? It still equals four. If I could convince all seven billion people on this ball of dirt that two plus two equals five, guess what? Seven billion people would all be wrong because it still equals four. The truth is narrow and intolerant like that. Let's ask Jesus. We covered this verse last week. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go that way. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. There are only a few that find it. You know what Jesus was saying there? serve the Lord only. If there's ever a scripture appropriate for us, I think it's this one. If we want to be free from the terror of our enemies, we are to serve the Lord only. How could God be so narrow, some people ask? How could it be that God would only provide one way to heaven, only one way to know him? The answer is because he's good. You see, if there were five ways to know him, Satan would provide 500 different counterfeits. So God keeps it real simple. There's only one way, and that way is my son. In Matthew 6:24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either hate the one and love the other, or love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. Even today, you cannot serve God and yourself at the same time without causing much internal conflict. We are called to remove anything that pulls us away from God. We cannot expect God to answer our prayers, reveal his presence, and give us victory over the enemy when we are straddling the fence, walking with one foot in the world and the other in the church. The Lord wants our hearts to be completely his. I mean, we can understand that even on a human level. How do you think Connie would respond if I told her I would be with her on Sunday and Monday, with Trixie on Tuesday and Wednesday, and with Bubbles the rest of the week. How many know I would not stay married very long? I may not even be breathing very long. If Connie didn't kill me, one of her sisters surely would. Or maybe one of you thinking about it. Verse 6 tells us after they put away their idols, they poured water on the ground. Now, in the book of Psalms, pouring water on the ground is saying that you know we we're pouring our whole soul on the ground because when you pour water out it's basically an irreversible process this is what these people were saying to god they're saying we we're pouring everything out we have to you and we we're not going to go back to our old ways this was no lip service revival they were praying fasting and confessing to god all their sins they were so distraught over their condition that the people couldn't even eat The time they would normally spend eating, they were spending with their face in the dirt. You know, all that God would make us hunger for him the same way that we hunger for our food. Job said, I've desired your word more than my necessary food. But it's not enough to cleanse our lives and all these false crutches and these idolatrous strongholds that have brazenly erected themselves in us. We must also replace our eternally empty worldly activity with joyful service to the true and the living God. We need to make a break of those things which stimulates us to sin against God. If your commitment is real, get rid of the stuff that pulls you towards sin. If you struggle with drinking, get rid of the booze. If you struggle with pornography, get rid of the sources. If you're convicted of a habit or a vice, stop buying more and get rid of what you already have. Make a complete break with those things that are pulling you away from the Lord. What is it that keeps us from doing that? Here are some of the lies you'll likely hear whispered in your ears by Satan. I know these are true because he's used them on me before. If I get rid of this, I'll be wasting money. I'll wait until I've used my last one. No. (laughs) No. We wasted the money when we bought it the first time. No value comes from using it. Make the break. I'll just keep one, but I'll not use it. I'll keep it just in case. In case of what? (laughs) That's the whole reason you get rid of it, so you cannot access it when you feel weak in your resolve. Once again, make the break. I will feel stupid, and others will think that I'm weird. I'll leave everything the same, but I'll just try harder. Harder than when. The last time you said you would stop? Where will this supernatural infusion of willpower come from? Once again, make the break. If you remember anything else I say this morning, remember this. We must be completely ruthless in our dealings with sin because we can be assured it will be completely ruthless in its dealings with us. In closing, in the old days, fire mills were constructed by rivers and large creeks so the water could be channeled to the water wheel, where he caused the giant grindstones to turn and crush the grain. Now, if in the middle of the day the wheel would stop turning, the miller would go outside to see what is wrong. And if he found the flow of water had been reduced to a trickle, he would go upstream to see what was blocking the flow of water, and then he would expend his energy working to remove the trash or blockage So that the water could flow freely again. That's what repentance is. He has described the Christian life as rivers of living water flowing out of our innermost being. When the water ever stops flowing in our lives, you know there is some blockage in our life that is causing that. This is repentance. So what do we do if we want to be revived? There must be a realization, a removal, and a resolve. There must be first a realization. We must realize and admit our sinful condition. Then there must be a removal. We must remove anything that we have put between us and the Lord. Then finally, there must be a resolve. We must turn from our man-made idols and serve the Lord and him alone. I can summarize the whole sermon this morning this way. Stop, repent, and serve the Lord. If you'd like to talk any more on anything that we've covered, please see me or Pastor John or any mature Christian, and we will be glad to help you. Lord, we know that you want us to uh, put away the idols and serve you because that is the most joyous and the best way to live. You created us, and you know what is best for us. And any time that I put anything in your place, it has always been misery. It may take a while, Lord. I think of Moses who said he'd rather suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is pleasurable, Lord, but it's just for a season, and it passes, and then it's judgment. So I pray, Lord, I know we're all here at different parts in our walk with you, and uh, I know that you've used uh, even this sermon to make me examine my life once again. None of us are above any of the things I've spoken about, especially not me. And so, Lord, wherever we are, I pray your Holy Spirit would meet us at that place. Give us the courage to do what we need to do, that we can be right with you, Lord. That's it in Christ's name. Amen.